There's a sensation that I felt at some point in college when I realized that you can do anything, right? And this sounds super cheesy, and I feel like this phrase gets tossed around so much that it really loses its meaning. Welcome to the VectorShift podcast. VectorShift is an AI automations platform. On this podcast, we have conversations with founders and experts in fields such as AI and B2B SaaS. Alan, welcome to the Vectorship Podcast. You know, we're super excited to have you here. Great to be here. Just for our listeners, a brief background on Alan. Alan is the founder and CEO of Health Harbor. Health Harbor uses generative AI to call insurance on behalf of doctors, saving time for their clinics and their patients. You know, for our listeners today, we'll discuss Alan's background, uh, what is Health Harbor, what technology Health Harbor uses to solve the problems for their, for their customers. And you know what's been really challenging and what are the successes, you know, of Health Harbor thus far. Thank you so much for your time today again. Uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background today, maybe to kick things off, Alan. Sure. Uh, I'd love to tell you a little bit about sir, where I grew up and what that was like for me. So I grew up in central New Jersey. I was actually raised by a single mom that actually did everything she could to isolate me from the burdens of an adult life so I could focus on what it actually meant to be a kid. So this meant having summers actually be vacations instead of a study camp. Um, but that said, I think uh, when I was growing up, I actually, I also actually did work quite hard. I remember in high school, I would spend the evenings up until like 2 a.m. Uh, in our little robotics warehouse, trying to program our robot in the fleeting few weeks we had until our competitions. Um, and I think it was really like that hard work that really uh, paid off, which led me to Yale and becoming a software engineer uh, in my career later on. Absolutely. If we just dive a little bit into your childhood, you mentioned kind of robotics. You know, what, what got you super fascinated in, in tech as, as a kid? Yeah, for me, uh, I, I mean, like many folks out there, I play a lot of video games as a kid. And one of the things that I was always curious about was like, how do they work? How, how are they, um, how do people win? And, um, it was that sort of innate competitiveness in myself, uh, that got me better, uh, to better understand how these, uh, the software works, how to actually program things like this and how to make things that effectively, um, improve things for other people as well. Absolutely. Maybe, you know, you talked about, you know, your time into college. Could you talk a little bit about maybe your journey between college and becoming a startup founder? And, you know, what led you to be a startup founder? Yeah, um, sure. So I would say that um, one of the feelings that is, it's really hard to put into words, actually. Um, but this, there's a sensation that I felt at some point in college when I realized that you can do anything. Right. And this sounds super cheesy. And I feel like this phrase gets tossed around so much that it really loses its meaning. But when you see other people take the same path as you, and those people are the ones that end up being presidents, astronauts, founders of Twitch and partners of Y Combinator, right? You really do get the feeling that everything is achievable with just hard work and perseverance. As long as you put your mind, uh, mind to it, people will actually come out of the woodwork and be willing to support you. I remember this one time when I was working on this uh, senior project, right, um, at Yale. And, uh, I was, uh, at the time I was working on, um, a hearing aid and it was something that I was like, Oh, like this, this is something I've always wanted to build for myself. 
um, cause I'm half deaf and I wanted to, um, just go, go do it myself. But as I started telling people about it, they're like, Oh, have you talked to so-and-so at this company? So-and-so at this other company. I specifically remember talking to Brian Hall at, uh, hearing one. And he, um, at the time, I think he was uh, a big exec over at the Amazon. Um, and he actually gave me like 30 minutes, like an hour of his time to like this random senior in college. And it was incredible because I was like, Hey, like you have, you have these opportunities to talk to the people that are actually changing the world and they're willing to help you to succeed. Absolutely. I remember, you know, reading a lot of startup literature and a lot of startup founders are, you know, the same They're you know, they want to have a high locus of control and want to, you know, make a difference. And, you know, and I, well, I've seen that a lot, you know, in the past year myself in the startup world, being able to, you know, if you work at it, um, you, you slowly chip away at the problem. Maybe you could talk, you know, a little bit about, um, kind of why, uh, you started Health Harbor and, you know, before yeah. maybe you guess that in your own, I gave an intro of what Health Harbor is, but maybe in your own words, Tell us a little bit about what Health Harbor is. Yeah, sure. So, um, so for me, uh, I started Health Harbor because I've always been interested in healthcare, right? So, like I said, I was working on a hearing aid before, and it's something that um, I very viscerally understood. Um, so, the pains of working with insurance, of um, making sure that doctors are able to prescribe something like this, of, of talking with all the patients that aren't able to get the care for an affordable price. And so we started Health Harbor because there's just a lack of price transparency, um, which in tune just comes comes down to a lack of communication um, between insurance uh, patients and doctors. And so what we do is we use generative AI to call insurance or doctors in their offices, solving that link of the chain. Our goal is to basically make it so that doctors and patients don't have to worry about which insurance provider the patient has. And instead, they can focus on actually delivering the care that all patients deserve. Could you talk a little bit, double click into the problem today and really illustrate, you know, if you're a you're private practice or even you're a large hospital system, you know, why, why is this a big problem for hospitals today? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, so basically, let me just break down this problem a little bit more um, for the, the uh, listeners that aren't really in healthcare. So when you go to the doctor's office, right, um, you effectively, uh, you give the first thing they'll usually ask you for is your member, uh, your healthcare insurance card, which has your member ID, your date of birth, and so on. And they take that uh, card and then uh, they usually call insurance or they look up in the portals to find how much um, you have to pay for your fillings or your root canal, et cetera, right? And um, that's a pretty long process. For some things, it'll, it'll take them like, maybe a couple minutes to do if there's available on the portal. But for other things, um, it'll take them on the order of half an hour just to make the call, sit through hold, talk to some rep in the Philippines that doesn't quite understand what you want. And that's just one step of the process. There's other steps where you have to get permission from insurance before going through a procedure and you have to wait 90 days. Imagine that, like going to a doctor, they're like, oh, we're gonna get you this treatment, but come back in three months. Or you can pay $3,000 out of pocket. Which one would you prefer? And it's like those choices that you never want to have people make. Um, so that's the general type of problem that we're solving um, and the types of problems that these communication challenges just lead to. Um, and by basically making it smoother to communicate with doctors um, and insurance, um, we're basically going to eliminate those time, um, those time delays. Many 
people have you know mentioned, oh, you know, the U.S. healthcare system is really complex. You know, why, why, why do you think? How, how did it get to this point today, where you know there's all this complexity, you know, and you know, in the system, and, and to get you know, just in the story that you mentioned about getting the data from the insurance companies. Yeah, no, it's really hard, and I think it's a lot. I mean, granted, I think a lot of these systems were built up. Um, uh, from like a good place, right? And that like you always um, with our system in America, where you have insurance doctors and patients, um, everyone's sort of advocating for um, the betterment of the patient in different ways, and sort of the the uh, the accumulation of bureaucracy over the years is all coming from a good place. Uh, that said, I think um, because each party is motivated by lowering costs, um, better treatments, um, and so on, it, it's it kind of leads to this sort of battle and tug of war ish. Um, and it leads to a lot of overhead. And I think that overhead is just completely unnecessary. I'm sorry. Could you talk about, you know, how does this problem differ between if you're like a private practice or, you know, you're a large hospital system? I know you mentioned also you yeah. serve different types of, you know, uh, players in the healthcare yeah, ecosystem. How does it look? Yeah, so like right now, we're actually looking at more so towards like the clinics and the smaller practices rather than big hospitals. Uh, because hospitals usually, they actually have a separate team that handles their billing that actually makes these calls routinely to the, uh, the call centers in the Philippines for the uh, insurance companies. And for small clinics, they don't have that. All they have is uh, Sally who works the front desk, right? And if Sally has 10 calls she needs to make between now and 5 p.m., uh, she's not going to be able to do all of them. So she's going to have to yeah. either be late or come in an extra day or that patient isn't going to know how much things cost. So that's basically a trade-off that the small clinics have to make versus hospitals that um, already have a team built out for this. So I, now I guess, you know, you mentioned you're using JVI to solve, you know, this problem and to make these calls. Can you talk a little bit about how you built the technology? What does the tech stack look like to actually solve the problem that you just described? Yeah, sure. So, um, so at high level, what we do is we break, uh, we have a telephony provider that we use. Um, and through that telephony provider, we basically stream our conversations, um, with the, uh, insurance agent. So we pass uh, the audio from the phone call through a transcriber, uh, which converts the speech into text. And then we feed it to a large language model, um, which gives us the response in text. So we convert it back into speech send it back over the wire, uh, over the telephone to the insurance agent. And uh, effectively, we continue the conversation that way. Um, this also means that we have a set of unique challenges or somewhat more unique challenges uh, compared to an average large language model startup. So uh, for us, latency is super important because if you are, I imagine we've all had the situation on a video call where one person starts talking and then the other person starts talking and they uh -huh. wait a minute or a couple of seconds and then they talk over each other again. Right. This is something that like we sort of have to program into the our AI to understand and we have to be able to handle conversation. Um, so latency is one of the key factors in us, more so than accuracy, actually. How, how have you improved latency? I'm, I'm sure there was like a, a, a curve they had to go down to continuously improve this. And I'm sure you're still just the more anyone can do, it, including our software, how to improve latency. But yeah, how, how, how did you accomplish that? Yeah, so uh, on the latency side, uh, a lot of it was actually just done through streaming. So we found like different types of streaming APIs actually integrate. Um, there's actually another solution that we did that 
um, that I think actually helped us quite a bit. And it's basically, uh, instead of, instead of optimizing latency, we loosened our constraints. So we basically, um, basically when we found that we we're talking over each other, um, we basically asked the other person to give us a little bit more time to respond. Um, so you might hear this happening in a normal conversation or humans adjust naturally. Um, but what we found is that if we basically just tell the other person like, Hey, can you give us a few more seconds or just wait a little bit longer? Um, it gets around some of the issues we have on the technical side by leveraging, um, the cooperativeness of human beings. I'm sorry. Which I always find to be, uh, a more intuitive and, uh, way to solve a technical problem. Sorry. Can you talk about, you know, you mentioned Sally, you know, today is making swapped with phone calls today, you know, one by one calling, calling down the list. What does Sally have to do with help Harvard to actually, you know, use your tool to make those 10 calls instead? Yeah, sure. So we actually have two ways uh, for folks to use our platform today. Uh, so the first is via our Gmail like portal. So instead of basically making the calls herself, she would effectively just send us uh, something akin to an email and we'd place the calls for her. Uh, the second way for us folks to integrate with our platform is to use an API. So in those situations um, where we integrate directly with the uh, the services that the uh, the dentist or a doctor's office is already using, um, they would basically just click a button and the result would appear in their schedule, in their uh, inbox, in what, uh, their patient information, uh, wherever it already exists. So in either of those situations, um, we basically save them between uh, pretty much about 40 hours every month. I'm sorry. Maybe we go, you know, to actually talk a little bit about being a startup founder, what's it being like? I'm curious, you know, maybe we could just talk about, you know, what has been, I guess, the most challenging thing that you have, you know, accounted as a startup founder. We were both in the Y Combinator Bass together. You know, that was a, you know, probably the hardest I've worked, if I were, you know, in, in my life. But yeah, I'm curious, you know, how, what has it been like, you know, since being a startup founder? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I guess I should start a little bit at the beginning of like what, uh, what it was like when, uh, we first got started and what's hard then and what's harder now. So, uh, I think when we first got started, um, uh, I was actually still working full time at another company. Um, and so basically to balance the two, I was moonlighting on this startup, spending about somewhere between 10 to 20 hours a week on this while also doing at least 40 hours of my full time job. And so what I had to do is I realized like I had to make sacrifices, right? You only have so many hours a week. So I cut down on social commitments. Uh, there are friends that uh, wanted to meet up and some birthday parties I regret not going to. Um, but every morning I effectively wake up at 6 a.m., um, work on startup things for about three hours before starting work at my real job or uh, at 9 a.m. And I would just collapse at 10 p.m. every day. <laughs> it was rough. I um, think that like managing that schedule was really, really rough. Um, it takes a big toll on you physically and mentally. Uh, I think now, uh, I think six months down the line, um, things are, uh, are definitely a little bit different. I think for, for, for me, it was really the mindset shift, uh, towards what being a founder means. And as a software engineer, you're always chasing perfection. So you never release things until they're perfect. If someone doesn't respond to your email, that's fine. Um, but, uh, what you learn is that people like, uh, you have to keep iterating. You have to keep releasing imperfect things and getting feedback. And if someone doesn't respond to your email, bug them again after three days and maybe another day or two. And that's just the way you have to operate because it's a busy world. Everyone is 
uh, going to be uh, constantly inundated with emails and other things, and you're not always at the top of their list. So it's not that they don't want to listen to you, they just don't have the time. And like, what was the initial conversation like, you know, to get your co-founders on board? Is this like, as, you know, were you proposing the idea and then you called, uh, you know, who you wanted to work with? Like, how did that initially, initial conversation go? Because I'm sure a lot of people who are interested, you know, in full-time jobs today are looking to start up as well today. Yeah, well, I guess in full transparency, when we first started, it wasn't on this idea, actually. So we actually started on a sleep apnea app. And it was at that time, um, we were talking to like doctors, but um, we I think we talked to like two doctors and we talked to like a bunch of our friends that had uh, or potentially could have had sleep apnea. Huh. And this is also something that we realized later as founders is that for validation of ideas, you don't just talk to one or two people, you talk to somewhere in the huh. 20 to 200, right? So a different order of magnitude entirely. And it was something that we kind of just needed to um, figure out. Um, and uh, it was, I think it was that, that part was actually quite challenging because when you have very limited hours during the day and you need to make those conversations happen um, with the separate amount of focus that you have, um, I think that was also quite hard. So I, um, how did you pivot to your current idea? Like what, yeah. what made you pivot? Yeah. So I think what was the best way for us to actually approach the idea that we're working on or find the idea that we're working on now, uh, we actually sat down with one of our co-founders' aunts uh, in Belmont. Uh, she runs a dentist uh, a dentistry office. And we basically sat with them over the course of like, I think, half a day to a day. And we just watched what they do. Um, so... I think it's one thing to have uh, one of your users tell you, hey, I spent a lot of time doing X, Y, and Z. But um, as someone technical, working with folks that are non-technical, um, a lot of times what they think is uh, efficient isn't really as efficient as it could be because uh, they're not always the most up-to-date with the most um, the latest and the greatest in technology. Now, don't take it too far, right? Don't, don't say, like, I know what everyone wants best, and they don't know what they're doing. That's all I'm saying. It's just that sometimes it's helpful to have an outside opinion um, that's uh, more technical and more up-to-date with things to actually look at what they're doing. And what we found was that the, the person we were working with, um, she was spending, like, all of her Fridays uh, just making calls. And the dentistry office was closed. Like, there's no patient uh, coming in on Friday. But she was having come in that day just to make calls. Uh, and it was that we were like, hey, like, this is, seems like a no-brainer. Um, how about we solve this for you? I'm sorry. I guess, you know, switching gears a little bit, you know, now, you know, we finished the Y Combinator batch. A lot of YC startups think about hiring, you know, right after, you know, the batch and scaling your teams, you know, to actually, you know, move the product forward. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, what is your philosophy? What has your philosophy been for hiring and what would you recommend to other founders on finding good talent? Yeah, um, in terms of where to get good talent, I see there's a lot of great portals out there. What I found is that the people that self-select into being uh, startup founders um, are, uh, or sort of startup-minded people are amazing. So we found great success with like YC's workout startup okay. page. Uh, personally, our approach to hiring um, is, I would say, a little bit different from conventional um, hiring, where we sort of want everybody to be their own PM. So we want people to feel empowered that so that they can push back on us if they believe something is more pressing or more important on the product side um, than what um, than what we're we're currently proposing or is on the roadmap today. And we believe this will give us uh, sort of better insights into what strategy are and also have people actually believe in like what they're working on more because 
I, I think everyone should, uh, if it comes to the point where people are working on things just because they're told to be doing things, then I don't think it will really drive the start forward. Sorry. That really makes sense. I'm sorry. We totally agree. You know, and in in having that philosophy as well. I'm curious how how do you use screen for for people with the with that kind of mentality and way of working? Yeah, so we actually have a pretty unique interview process. Uh, so for us, um, after our screening phase, we typically uh, ask them to join us at our office uh, for about a half day of work, uh, and this is something that um, they uh, so that they get a sense of what working with us is actually like, and we get a sense of um, the reverse, right? And so we get a sense of, hey, like, um, we'll give you a project. Um, let's see what questions you ask. Let's see what uh, what you're interested in. Let's see what types of um, solutions would you propose. And uh, these are, I think, the types of questions that you normally ask someone if you're working with them. And you don't really get a chance to in the natural environment or in uh-huh. the in the back-to-back 45-minute coding interviews. Uh, so this is something that um, I really enjoy now that we get to make uh, our decisions on how we want to frame hiring. I'm sorry. Maybe one last question on on um, being a founder. I mean, what is uh, you know, and your startup? I guess you know, what what is your goal for 2024 from a product perspective? What, what do you see are the challenges you see in your customers that you want to you know improve how you solve? Um, and yeah, where where do you want to take take the company in 2024? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I think this sort of goes back to what uh, I was mentioning a little bit earlier when. Um, when I was talking about the different phases of how doctors talk with insurance. So right now we're mainly working on this phase called benefits verification where, uh, where we check how much patients need to pay. But, um, there are parts where you actually need to ask permission from insurance before starting a procedure. Uh, and this part is called prior authorizations. So we'll actually be going into prior authorizations for 2024, uh, basically offering that for our customers so that, um, for their patients, they don't need to wait 90 days. Uh, in between um, actually starting um, being recommended the procedure and having the procedure go through. Absolutely. Amazing. Uh, it's amazing to speak with you today, Alan. Uh, I always end you know, these interviews with the same question. We'd love to hear your perspective on it. Uh, you know, we're, you know, I, you know, as a consumer of a lot of media and Silicon Valley, there's a debate about what is more important, you know, your idea or kind of your execution of the idea. So I'm curious, you know, what do you think has been more important for you? But even on top of that, you know, like I see, you know, you've pivoted, you've done kind of multiple ideas. I'm sure, I think because of that, you might have a, you know, unique view, especially through these pivots on what do you think is more important? Yeah, um, for me, I think execution is definitely 100% more important than the idea. Uh, like you can get any... Uh, any uh, nice MBA student to come in here and give you a good idea of what they think is going to be important. But unless you actually go out there, talk to users, figure things out for what what they actually need, what they're really willing to like commit money to. Uh, and if that doesn't work, like how do you change your approach? How do you change people you're talking to? Um, do you uh, use like other distribution channels? Change your go to market, right? Like these are all smaller decisions that impact your overall execution. And if you make any of those decisions wrong, boom, you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's the thing that's more likely to go wrong of the two, right? I think it's very, it's very, uh, it's very uh, hard to have a vision go wrong unless it's just super, super small, but it's very easy for your execution to go wrong. So that's why I say execution is definitely harder of the two. Absolutely. Alan, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to, to speak with me. Um, hope you have a good rest of the day and thank you so much.
Always love talking to you, Albert.